Question 109, Part 1 of Summa Theologica Prima Secundae, Treatise on Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Prima Secundae, Treatise on Grace, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 109 of the Necessity of Grace in Ten Articles. Part 1, Articles 1 through 5. We must now consider the exterior principle of human acts, that is, God, insofar as, through grace, we are helped by Him to do right. And first, we must consider the grace of God secondly its cause thirdly its effects the first point of consideration will be threefold for we shall consider one the necessity of grace two grace itself as to its essence three its division under the first head there are ten points of inquiry first whether without grace man can know anything Second, whether without God's grace man can do or wish any good. Third, whether without grace man can love God above all things. Fourth, whether without grace man can keep the commandments of the law. Fifth, whether without grace he can merit eternal life. Sixth, whether without grace man can prepare himself for grace. Seventh, whether without grace he can rise from sin. Eighth, whether without grace man can avoid sin. Ninth, whether man, having received grace, can do good and avoid sin without any further divine help. Tenth, whether he can of himself persevere in good. First article whether without grace man can know any truth. Objection 1. It would seem that without grace man can know no truth. For, in 1 Corinthians 12.3, No man can say, The Lord Jesus, but by the Holy Ghost. A gloss says, Every truth, by whomsoever spoken, is from the Holy Ghost. Now the Holy Ghost dwells in us by grace. Therefore, we cannot know truth without grace. Objection to further. Augustine says in the Soliloquies one six that the most certain sciences are like things lit up by the sun, so as to be seen. Now God himself is he who sheds the light, and reason is in the mind as sight is in the eye and the eyes of the mind are the senses of the soul. Now the bodily senses, however pure, cannot see any visible object without the sun's light. Therefore the human mind, however perfect, cannot by reasoning know any truth without divine light, and this pertains to the aid of grace. Objection 3. Further, the human mind can only understand truth by thinking as is clear from Augustine in On the Trinity 14.7. But the Apostle says in Second Corinthians 3.5 
not that we are sufficient to think anything of ourselves as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Therefore, man cannot, of himself, know truth without the help of grace. On the contrary, Augustine says in his Retractions 1.4, I do not approve having said in the prayer, O God, who dost wish the sinless alone to know the truth. For it may be answered that many who are not sinless know many truths. Now man is cleansed from sin by grace, according to Psalm 50, verse 12, Create a clean heart in me, O God, and renew a right spirit within my bowels. Therefore, without grace, man of himself can know truth. I answer that, to know truth is a use or act of intellectual light, since, according to the Apostle, in Ephesians 5.13, all that is made manifest is light. Now every use implies movement, taking movement broadly, so as to call thinking and willing movements, as is clear from the Philosopher in On the Soul 3.4. Now, in corporeal things, we see that for movement there is required not merely the form, which is the principle of the movement or action, but there is also required the motion of the first mover. Now, the first mover, in the order of corporeal things, is the heavenly body. Hence, no matter how perfectly fire has heat, it would not bring about alteration except by the motion of the heavenly body. But it is clear that as all corporeal movements are reduced to the motion of the heavenly body as to the first corporeal mover, so all movements, both corporeal and spiritual, are reduced to the simple first mover, who is God. And hence, no matter how perfect a corporeal or spiritual nature is supposed to be, it cannot proceed to its act unless it be moved by God. But this motion is according to the plan of his providence, and not by necessity of nature, as the motion of the heavenly body. Now not only is every motion from God as from the first mover, but all formal perfection is from him as from the first act. And thus the act of the intellect, or of any created being whatsoever, depends upon God in two ways. First, inasmuch as it is from him, that it has the form whereby it acts, secondly, inasmuch as it is moved by him to act. Now every form bestowed on created things by God has power for a determined act, which it can bring about in proportion to its own power and endowment, and beyond which it is powerless, except by a superadded form, as water can only heat when heated by fire. And thus the human understanding has a form, notably intelligible light, which of itself is sufficient for knowing certain intelligible things, notably those we can come to know through the senses. Higher intelligible things the human intellect cannot know unless it be perfected by a stronger light, notably the light of faith or prophecy which is called the light of grace, inasmuch as it is added to nature. Hence we must say that for the knowledge of any truth whatsoever, man needs divine help, 
that the intellect may be moved by God to its act. But he does not need a new light added to his natural light in order to know the truth in all things, but only in some that surpass his natural knowledge. And yet, at times, God miraculously instructs some by his grace in things that can be known by natural reason, even as he sometimes brings about miraculously what nature can do. Reply to Objection 1. Every truth by whomsoever spoken is from the Holy Ghost as bestowing the natural light, and moving us to understand and speak the truth, but not as dwelling in us by sanctifying grace, or as bestowing any habitual gift superadded to nature. For this only takes place with regard to certain truths that are known and spoken, and especially in regard to such as pertain to faith, of which the Apostle speaks. Reply to Objection 2. The material sun sheds its light outside us, but the intelligible sun, who is God, shines within us. Hence the natural light bestowed upon the soul is God's enlightenment, whereby we are enlightened to see what pertains to natural knowledge, and for this there is required no further knowledge, but only for such things as surpass natural knowledge. Reply to Objection 3. We always need God's help for every thought, inasmuch as he moves the understanding to act. For actually to understand anything is to think, as is clear from Augustine in On the Trinity 14.7. Second article, Whether Man Can Wish or Do Any Good Without Grace. Objection 1. It would seem that man can wish and do good without grace. For that is in man's power, whereof he is master. Now man is master of his acts, and especially of his willing, as stated above in question 1, article 1, and in question 13, article 6. Hence man, of himself, can wish and do good without the help of grace. Objection to, further, Man has more power over what is according to his nature than over what is beyond his nature. Now sin is against his nature, as Damascene says in On the True Faith 2.30, whereas deeds of virtue are according to his nature, as stated above in Question 71, Article 1. Therefore, since man can sin of himself, he can wish and do good. Objection 3. Further, the understanding's good is truth, as the philosopher says in Ethics 6.2. Now the intellect can of itself know truth, even as every other thing can work its own operation of itself. Therefore, much more can man of himself do and wish good. On the contrary, the Apostle says in Romans 9.16, it is not of him that willeth, namely, to will, nor of him that runneth, namely, to run, but of God that showeth mercy. And Augustine says in On Admonition and Grace, too, that without grace men do nothing good when they either think or wish or love or act. 
I answer that man's nature may be looked at in two ways. First, in its integrity, as it was in our first parent before sin. Secondly, as it is corrupted in us after the sin of our first parent. Now in both states, human nature needs the help of God as first mover to do or wish any good whatsoever, as stated above in Article 1. But in the state of integrity, as regards the sufficiency of the operative power, man by his natural endowments could wish and do the good proportionate to his nature, such as the good of acquired virtue, but not surpassing good as the good of infused virtue. But in the state of corrupt nature, man falls short of what he could do by his nature, so that he is unable to fulfill it by his own natural powers. Yet because human nature is not altogether corrupted by sin, so as to be shorn of every natural good, even in the state of corrupted nature it can, by virtue of its natural endowments, work some particular good, as to build dwellings, plant vineyards, and the like. Yet it cannot do all the good natural to it, so as to fall short in nothing, just as a sick man can of himself make some movements, yet he cannot be perfectly moved with the movements of one in health, unless by the help of medicine he be cured. And thus, in the state of perfect nature, man needs a gratuitous strength superadded to natural strength for one reason, notably, in order to do and wish supernatural good. But for two reasons, in the state of corrupt nature, notably, in order to be healed, and furthermore, in order to carry out works of supernatural virtue, which are meritorious. Beyond this, in both states, man needs the divine help, that he may be moved to act well. Reply to Objection 1. Man is master of his acts, and of his willing or not willing, because of his deliberate reason, which can be bent to one side or another. And although he is master of his deliberating or not deliberating, yet this can only be by a previous deliberation, and since it cannot go on to infinity, we must come at length to this, that man's free will is moved by an extrinsic principle, which is above the human mind, to wit, by God, as the philosopher proves in the chapter on good fortune, in the Eudemian's Ethics 7. Hence the mind of man, still unweakened, is not so much master of its act that it does not need to be moved by God, and much more the free will of man weakened by sin, whereby it is hindered from good by the corruption of the nature. Reply to Objection 2. To sin is nothing else than to fail in the good which belongs to any being according to its nature. Now as every created thing has its being from another, and considered in itself is nothing, so does it need to be preserved by another in the good which pertains to its nature. For it can of itself fail in good, even as of itself it can fall into non-existence, unless it is upheld by God. Reply to Objection 3. Man cannot even know truth without divine help, as stated above in Article 1. 
and yet human nature is more corrupt by sin in regard to the desire for good than in regard to the knowledge of truth. Third article. Whether by his own natural powers and without grace man can love God above all things. Objection 1. It would seem that without grace man cannot love God above all things by his own natural powers. For to love God above all things is the proper and principal act of charity. Now man cannot of himself possess charity since the charity of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given to us, as is said in Romans 5.5. 5. Therefore, man by his natural powers alone cannot love God above all things. Objection to, further, no nature can rise above itself. But to love God above all things is to tend above oneself. Therefore, without the help of grace, no created nature can love God above itself. Objection 3. Further, to God, who is the highest good, is due the best love, which is that he beloved above all things. Now without grace, man is not capable of giving God the best love, which is his due. Otherwise, it would be useless to add grace. Hence man, without grace and with his natural powers alone, cannot love God above all things. On the contrary, as some maintain, man was first made with only natural endowments, and in this state it is manifest that he loved God to some extent, but he did not love God equally with himself or less than himself, otherwise he would have sinned. Therefore he loved God above himself. Therefore, man, by his natural powers alone, can love God more than himself and above all things. I answer that, as was said above in the Pars Prima, question 60, article 5, where the various opinions concerning the natural love of the angels were set forth, man, in a state of perfect nature, could, by his natural power, do the good natural to him without the addition of any gratuitous gift, though not without the help of God moving him. Now to love God above all things is natural to man and to every nature, not only rational but irrational, and even to inanimate nature according to the manner of love which can belong to each creature. And the reason of this is that it is natural to all to seek and love things according as they are naturally fit, to be sought and loved, since all things act according as they are naturally fit, as stated in Physics 2.8. Now it is manifest that the good of the part is for the good of the whole. Hence everything by its natural appetite and love loves its own proper good on account of the common good of the whole universe, which is God. Hence Dionysius says in On the Divine Names 4 that God leads everything to love of himself. Hence, in the state of perfect nature, man referred the love of himself and of all other things to the love of God as to its end, and thus he loved God more than himself and above all things. But in the state of corrupt nature, man falls short of this in the appetite of his rational will, which, unless it is cured by God's grace, 
follows its private good on account of the corruption of nature. And hence we must say that in the state of perfect nature man did not need the gift of grace added to his natural endowments, in order to love God above all things naturally, although he needed God's help to move him to it. But in the state of corrupt nature man needs, even for this, the help of grace to heal his nature. Reply to Objection 1. Charity loves God above all things in a higher way than nature does. For nature loves God above all things inasmuch as he is the beginning and end of natural good, whereas charity loves him as he is the object of beatitude and inasmuch as man has a spiritual fellowship with God. Moreover, charity adds to the natural love of God a certain quickness and joy in the same way that every habit of virtue adds to the good act which is done merely by the natural reason of a man who has not the habit of virtue. Reply to Objection 2. When it is said that nature cannot rise above itself, we must not understand this as if it could not be drawn to any object above itself, for it is clear that our intellect, by its natural knowledge, can know things above itself, as is shown in our natural knowledge of God. But we are to understand that nature cannot rise to an act exceeding the proportion of its strength. Now to love God above all things is not such an act, for it is natural to every creature as was said above. Reply to Objection 3. Love is said to be best, both with respect to degree of love and with regard to the motive of loving and the mode of love. And thus, the highest degree of love is that whereby charity loves God as the giver of beatitude, as was said above. Fourth article. Whether man, without grace and by his own natural powers, can fulfill the commandments of the law. Objection 1. It would seem that man, without grace, and by his own natural powers, can fulfill the commandments of the law. For the Apostle says in Romans 2.14 that the Gentiles, who have not the law, do by nature those things that are of the law. Now what a man does naturally, he can do of himself without grace. Hence a man can fulfill the commandments of the law without grace. Objection to, further, Jerome says in his exposition on the Catholic faith. Translators note, this is a suppositious work now ascribed to Pelagius. That they are anathema who say God has laid impossibilities upon man. Now what a man cannot fulfill by himself is impossible to him. Therefore, a man can fulfill all the commandments of himself. Objection 3. Further, of all the commandments of the law, the greatest is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-seven. Now man, with his natural endowments, can fulfill this command by loving God above all things, as stated above in Article 3. Therefore, 
man can fulfill all the commandments of the law without grace. On the contrary, Augustine says, in On Heresies 88, that it is part of the Pelagian heresy that they believe that without grace man can fulfill all the divine commandments. I answer that there are two ways of fulfilling the commandments of the law. The first regards the substance of the works, as when a man does works of justice, fortitude, and of other virtues. And in this way, man in the state of perfect nature could fulfill all the commandments of the law. Otherwise, he would have been unable to sin in that state, since to sin is nothing else than to transgress the divine commandments. But in the state of corrupted nature, man cannot fulfill all the divine commandments without healing grace. Secondly, the commandments of the law can be fulfilled not merely as regards the substance of the act, but also as regards the mode of acting, that is, their being done out of charity. And in this way, neither in the state of perfect nature, nor in the state of corrupt nature, can man fulfill the commandments of the law without grace. Hence Augustine, in On Admonition and Grace, too, having stated that, without grace men can do no good whatever, adds, not only do they know by its light what to do, but by its help they do lovingly what they know. Beyond this, in both states, they need the help of God's motion in order to fulfill the commandments, as stated above in Articles 2 and 3. Reply to Objection 1. As Augustine says in On the Spirit and the Letter 27, Do not be disturbed at his saying that they do by nature those things that are of the law. For the Spirit of grace works this, in order to restore in us the image of God, after which we were naturally made. Reply to Objection 2. What we can do with the divine assistance is not altogether impossible to us, according to the philosopher in Ethics 3.3. What we can do through our friends, we can do, in some sense, by ourselves. Hence Jerome concedes that our will is in such a way free that we must confess we still require God's help. Translators note, this is from a supposititious work of St. Jerome, now ascribed to Pelagius. Reply to Objection 3. Man cannot, with his purely natural endowments, fulfill the precept of the love of God, as stated above in Article 3. Fifth article, whether man can merit everlasting life without grace. Objection 1. It would seem that man can merit everlasting life without grace. For our Lord says in Matthew 19.17, If thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. From which it would seem that to enter into everlasting life rests with man's will. But what rests with our will, we can do of ourselves. Hence, it seems that man can merit everlasting life of himself. 
Objection to, further, eternal life is the wage of reward bestowed by God on men, according to Matthew 5.12. Your reward is very great in heaven. But wage, or reward, is meted by God to everyone according to his works, according to Psalm 61.12, Thou wilt render to every man according to his works. Hence, since man is master of his works, it seems that it is within his power to reach everlasting life. Objection 3. Further, everlasting life is the last end of human life. Now every natural thing, by its natural endowments, can attain to its end. Much more, therefore, may man attain to life everlasting by his natural endowments, without grace. On the contrary, the Apostle says in Romans 6.23, The grace of God is life everlasting. And as a gloss says, this is said, that we may understand that God, of his own mercy, leads us to everlasting life. I answer that, acts conducing to an end must be proportioned to the end, but no act exceeds the proportion of its active principle. And hence we see in natural things that nothing can by its operation bring about an effect which exceeds its active force but only such as is proportionate to its power. Now everlasting life is an end exceeding the proportion of human nature, as is clear from what we have said above in question 5, article 5. Hence man, by his natural endowments, cannot produce meritorious works proportionate to everlasting life, and for this a higher force is needed, notably the force of grace. And thus, without grace, man cannot merit everlasting life. Yet he can perform works conducing to a good which is natural to man, as to toil in the fields, to drink, to eat, or to have friends, and the like, as Augustine says in his third reply to the Pelagians. Translator's note from the Hipponosticon, number three, among the spurious works of St. Augustine. Reply to Objection 1. Man, by his will, does works meritorious of everlasting life. But, as Augustine says in the same book, for this it is necessary that the will of man should be prepared with grace by God. Reply to Objection 2. As the gloss upon Romans 6.23, the grace of God is life everlasting, says, It is certain that everlasting life is meted to good works, but the works to which it is meted belong to God's grace. And it has been said, in Article 4, that to fulfill the commandments of the law in their due way, whereby their fulfillment may be meritorious, requires grace. Reply to Objection 3. This objection has to do with the natural end of man. Now human nature, since it is nobler, can be raised by the help of grace to a higher end, which lower natures can nowise reach. Even as a man who can recover his health by the help of medicines is better disposed to health than one who can nowise recover it, as the philosopher observes 
in On the Heavens 212. End of question 109. Part 1. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.